Open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 2, page 1226 in those pew Bibles. Revelation chapter 2 being in verse 18. This morning we're going to take our third look here at the tolerating church in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to have to finish this morning because I'm not sure you guys would tolerate a fourth part for this sermon series. So uh, we're going to have to make it work this morning. Revelation 2:18 through 29, the letter to the church at Thyatira. This section of Scripture, as in the others, earlier letters, there are five facets of Christ's examination of the church that we must understand so that we can discern what makes for a great church in the eyes of God. So over these prior weeks, we have looked at Christ's command in verse 18, Christ's commendation in verse 19, and Christ's condemnation in verses 20 and 21. And then last week we entered into the thicket of Christ's correction and the, uh, and the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 22 and 23. We're going to pick that up this morning and carry the ball forward to the end. So let me read the text, get us going here. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. They gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds and I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are shattered to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star to he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The big issue for this church at Thyatira, indeed for every church of every age, is to decide whether God has fully and finally spoken through His apostles, inscripturated for us here in what we call a Bible, or whether He is continuing to speak, continuing to speak, continuing to give fresh revelation 
Here for the church at Thyatira, the circumstances are this woman, verse 20, Jezebel, right? The so-called prophetess. She is continuing to speak, she says, on behalf of God and to bring fresh teaching to this church. What are they going to do? Are they going to stand firm in the word of the apostle or are they going to embrace this new teaching? The leadership knew the right answer, right? Notice in verse 20. This is all by way of review. I'm trying to bring you up to speed here, right? The church knew the right answer. I have this against you. You tolerate the woman. They tolerated her. They knew that what she was doing was not right, did not line up, yet they were unwilling to make a stand. They continued to tolerate this. That's not unique to them. As I say, it's for all churches, for all churches of all times. We have to make a decision. The decision is, do we walk in righteousness or do we walk in wickedness? The church of Thyatira knew the right answer. The Proverbs say there are only two ways, right? Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. It says that the way of the righteous, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter until the full day, but the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Those who walk in righteousness, the path becomes clearer and clearer and clearer to them. Those who refuse and walk in wickedness, the path becomes darker and darker and darker till they stumble and fall. There are only two ways. Will you line up with the Word of God or will you line up with others? He brings correction here to this church, verses 22 and 23. He is correcting this church because of their refusal to line up firmly with the apostles. Notice in verse 22, he brings it to them here, the correction. He says, behold, pay attention, listen up. I will cast her, that is this so-called prophetess, upon a bed. And we noticed last time that of sickness is in italics saying that it's not there in the original text. I will cast her upon a bed and those who commit adultery with her into great Tribulation. We noted for you last time that there's an example here of Hebrew parallelism. Both are headed for the same place. The bed and the tribulation is the same judgment. It's not that she gets one judgment, they get another. They are both headed to the same place. They are headed to the great tribulation. The tribulation that is outlined for them beginning in chapter 4 and running all the way through chapter 19. The tribulation that is spelled out explicitly for them in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, the judgment, the affliction, the suffering that is going to come upon all those who refuse to walk in the path of light. And that brought us last week face to face with the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And that was a bit of a mind bender. And we'll continue to bend your minds biblically this morning on that great topic. Hold fast, he says in verse 25. He's offering it there as an encouragement to those who are walking in the right path. But notice even there, hold fast until I come. The idea of the imminent return of Jesus Christ is flowing all through this letter. 
For the wicked, it's right at the door. The judge is standing at the door and, and judgment is coming. And it's an awful judgment laid out for you here in the remainder of the book. For those who walk in righteousness, hang on until I get there and there is great reward. These people are living in the shadow of the return of Jesus Christ. And beloved, so are we. We are living biblically or are to be living biblically in the shadow of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to, it is to motivate us. It is to, it is to be like an umbrella over our lives. We are to live in a conscious understanding that Christ can return at any moment. And when He returns, He will hand out reward and He will hand out judgment. We noted last time for you that an imminent event is an event that is close at hand. It is an event that is overhanging. It is an event that can take you by surprise at a moment's notice. That there is nothing that must happen first before an imminent event can occur. And thus it is the same with the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing must happen before He comes. He can come at any moment and He could have come at any moment. We noted last time as well that this enters us into that mystery of God's decreed will. That the time of the return of Jesus Christ is a fixed date. Jesus says it Himself in Acts 1. It's not for you to know the time that the Father has fixed by His own authority. There is a fixed date and time of the return of Jesus Christ. Yet, from the human point of view, that moment can be at any time. The tension of those two truths we cannot resolve. But we must affirm both. And from us, our side of glory as finite human beings, the truth that we must concentrate on for our own lives is a recognition of Jesus Christ can come at any time. And when He comes, beloved, look at verse 23. It will be in terrifying judgment upon those who persist to walk in the way of of wickedness. Verse 23, and I will kill her children with pestilence. I will kill her children with pestilence. Just as the judgment on the so-called prophetess Jezebel is absolutely assured. Verse 22, so therefore the judgment upon her children is assured as well. Verse 23, they will be killed, he says, with pestilence. Well, we don't know this for sure, but... If you just slide over to the right a little bit to chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, this is perhaps the pestilence he's talking about. Revelation 6, 7 and 8, and when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. And authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. The judgment of pestilence is laid out for this church. Back to chapter 2, verse 23. I will kill her children with pestilence, he says. It is assured. It is absolutely an accomplished reality waiting to occur in space and time. Who are these children of Jezebel? We don't believe that they are physical offspring of hers from some illicit sexual relationship. 
That's not the point. What we what we believe to be true is that these are her spiritual offspring. These are the second generation of her disciples. These are the ones who have wholeheartedly embraced her heresy. They have now given themselves over to the antinomian doctrines that she has been teaching in the church. And thus, she is their spiritual mother and they are her spiritual children. These are second generation heretics who present a special danger, an acute and pronounced danger for the church here. And the danger is that they are so fully persuaded of the truth and they have grown up in that lie that they will quickly pass that lie on. Like a bubonic plague, it, it is ready to overtake the entire church. And so Jesus says, I will kill her children with pestilence. Why? Verse 23, that the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and the hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Jesus says, so that the churches will know that they will observe, that they will understand that the wrath of the Lamb is real. That judgment upon your deeds is a reality that you will not escape. He who knows what goes on inside, verse 23, searching the minds and the hearts, Jesus will bring judgment. There is no escape. Jesus is aware of both our exterior conduct and our interior thought life. And He will bring both of them into judgment. And He will judge us righteously. You know, how people live makes a difference. How you live makes a difference. How I live makes a difference. It is not just a profession of our mouth. It is the, it is the life that we live that will be brought into judgment. He says those who live righteously, not perfectly, but righteously will experience reward and those who live unrighteously will be punished. It's an uncomfortable thought, isn't it? That the judge of all the universe who can look inside and know what's going on, look at it again, verse 23, he searches the minds and the hearts and he judges their deeds. He gives according to their deeds. He is the one to whom we have to do. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 9-10, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. He said, I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. Who sifts the mind? Who tests the heart? It is the Lord God. Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 27, Jesus himself, he said, for when the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels, and he will then recompense or pay back every man according to his deeds. How we live, beloved, makes a difference. What we do in this life makes a real difference. Now, listen carefully to me here. Salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. Amen? We are redeemed by the grace of God, activated through our embracing of it by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But how we live reveals the reality of the faith 
or lack thereof within our hearts. That's the message James gives, right? James 2, 17 and 18. He says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. How you live. How you live demonstrates the reality of what is going on inside your heart. And Jesus Christ says that He will bring it into Judgment. He will bring it into judgment. The way is clear for this church. It is laid out very clearly before them. For those who persist to walk in the way of wickedness, judgment is what they will expect. Right? Verse 22, I will cast her into a bed of of, uh, suffering. Those who commit adultery into tribulation, I will kill her children with pestilence. Those who refuse me will go into the horrors to be described here later in this great book but those who walk in the way of righteousness those who repent and turn from their sin and return to the way of righteousness they will know reward and jesus knows which path they're on just as he knows what path you are on you may fool your parents young young people you may fool your mom and dad Husbands, you may fool your wives. Wives, you may fool your husbands. You can certainly fool the elders. And you may even deceive yourself at times. But the Lord Jesus Christ knows what's going on inside. He knows the reality of your life. He searches. Look again, verse 18. The Son of God who has eyes like what? A flame of fire that burn in He knows what's going on. He turns now, verse 24, what we call the challenge. Christ's challenge to this church. His pronouncement of judgment has been strong. It has been fearful. It has been heavy. It is designed to assure the wicked of their punishment and to frighten those who are flirting with it to return to the path of righteousness. But now he turns to those who are still on the path of righteousness and he speaks comfort to them. To those who are in the way of righteousness. Verses 24 and following. Notice verse 24. He says, but I say to you, there is a there is a turn in the message here. It is away from judgment now and it is toward reward. This is an encouragement section that follows. But I say to you, can't see it in the English text here, but the personal pronoun you changes as well. It goes from first person singular to second plural. What he means is he's opening this message up to those that remain in the church of Thyatira who are walking in the path of righteousness. I do have a message for you, he says. For you who have not been deceived by this so-called false prophet, by, by you who have continued to hang tight to the word of the apostles, I've got something to say to you. Notice how he characterizes those who walk in the way of righteousness here. First, he says, verse 24, I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching. The first way he describes them is those who refuse the teaching of Jezebel. That is, they remain faithful to the word of the apostles. 
We pointed this out to you before. We'll do it again so you can get this in context. But back in the Jerusalem Council, right? Acts 15, verses 28 and 29. The letter was addressed to the churches. And it said, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. And now along comes this lady 50 years later and she says, don't listen to that. I have a new word of the Lord and the new word of the Lord is it's okay to participate in idol feasts and it's all right if they descend into debauchery and immorality. Do not worry, it will not hurt you. Who will you listen to? Will you hold tight to the word of the apostles? Or will you listen to this so-called new teaching, this new revelation? Jesus commends this group here and challenges them. Verse 24, those who do not hold to the teaching of Jezebel. He, he, he describes them in a second way here. And he says, those who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. That is, those who have not entered into this heresy. They have held to the apostles and they have not entered into the so-called deep things of Satan. They have not indulged in idol feasts. They have not descended into immorality. They have not participated in her sin. Notice it says so-called, right? Not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. That is, as Jezebel's followers call them. This takes us historically to the issue of Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And without getting too sidetracked, Gnosticism was an early heresy arising in the church in which based on Platonic philosophy, they denied the unity of, of, of humanity in body and soul. And what they said was that the body was material and it was evil and the soul was spiritual and it was good and that what you did in the body did not affect your soul. That you could live any way you wanted to and it would not affect your soul. We don't know exactly what Jezebel was teaching. We're speculating here a little bit, admittedly, but notice where it says, those who do not hold this teaching who have not known the deep things of Satan. We suspect that what her message was was something like this. Because the the body is material and what happens in the body does not and cannot affect the soul. And because the grace of God is so strong that it will, it will assure you victory eternally and preservation of your soul in righteousness, therefore, you may enter in. Go all the way in. Go to the bottom. Go to the deepest place. Try it all out. Without, a, without fear, without aban with abandonment, go in and experience the idol feast. Go ahead and participate in the orgies that follow. Do not worry. God in His grace can and will purify your soul. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter how you live. John had earlier attempted to... to um, unsuccessfully refute this very wicked heresy. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, he addresses it. And he says, If we say we have not sinned, 
we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 3, verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. It does matter how you live. You cannot maintain that I can live any way I want, but God, by his grace, has saved my soul and the two do not meet. Notice verse 24, he says, I place no other burden on you, but hang on. This is the burden that I want you to do. I want you to hang on. Verse 26, to he who overcomes. Hold on until I come. Hold fast until I come. And then he goes on and he talks about he who overcomes. What he wants this church to do, those within the church who have, who have not entered the way of wickedness, is to remain on the path of righteousness. That's his message. Remain on the path of righteousness. Do not give in to Jezebel and her minions. Do not buy her wicked philosophy. Hang on. You remember a couple of weeks ago we told you that what was of historical note that stands behind this church is the reality of the trade guilds. That all those who, who lived in this particular community that was otherwise pretty unnotable was that you had to belong to a manufacturing or a marketing trade guild, what we would call in our language today a labor union. And did you not belong, if you did not belong to a guild, you did not work. So what he is saying to this church here, to these people within this church, is that you must hang on even at the loss of your job. Even at the loss of employment. Hang on to the truth, whether it costs you your job or not. Let me just remind you, there were no safety nets in the first century. There was no government unemployment system. There was no welfare system. If you lost your job, you died of hunger. Unless a family member would take you in. And here in this region, because the trade guilds held such a control over all that went on, it was not like you would quit your job at one place and go get a job somewhere else. Should you hang on and refuse, you ran the very real risk of not working at all. And if you do not work, you do not get paid. And if you do not get paid, you do not eat. And if you do not eat, you and your children face the risk of starvation. This is a very real situation. Hang on, he says. I place no other burden on you but this. Walk in righteousness, even if it costs you all that you have. There are two paths before this church. Two paths. Divergent paths. The way of wickedness, the way of righteousness. If they walk in righteousness, there are blessings to be bestowed. Verses 26 through 28. If they walk in the path of righteousness, they can expect the eschatological judgments of chapters 4 through 19. What will it be? Reward or condemnation? And in either case, the judge is right at the door. This is not in the future someday. This is today. You must live in the expectation that the accounting could be today. 
You cannot dabble in wickedness for a lifetime and expect later at the end you will come back to the path of righteousness. You do not know the hour when the thief will come. Question. How can these blessings and threats be real? Alright, if God knew that it, that, uh, it was not going to actually happen in this person's lifetime, God obviously knew that she was not going to enter into the tribulation. Isn't that right? Because we know that obviously the tribulation has not come yet. So how is this a real threat and a real promise for this church? And indeed, how is it a real threat and a real promise to any of the churches of the last 1900 years? That's a hard question. That is a difficult question. The answer to which will bend your mind a little bit. So are you ready to have your mind bent a little as we brush up against glory? Remember last week I asked you a question. When does something become a reality? When it occurs in space and time or when it is decreed of Almighty God? The reality of Jezebel's torment is certain. Verse 22, right? It was a futuristic present, I told you. That means that it's, a, it's using a present tense verb to describe a future event because it is absolutely certain to come. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed or literally I cast her upon a bed. If she is alive when Christ returns, she will certainly go into the tribulation. And following the tribulation will come the lake of fire and the eternal punishments. But since she died before Christ returned, she did not go into what I will call stage one of the eschatological judgments. Beloved, the tribulation is nothing but a down payment on the eternal torment. You read through chapters 4 through 19 of this book and you see the awful judgments that are poured out on this earth and upon the unbelievers and you get but a glimpse of what hell is like. She receives her judgment. Had Christ returned in her life, she would have gone through the tribulation and then into the eternal judgment. Because she died first, she goes directly into the eternal judgment. But they together describe the great eschatological judgments of God. I'm going to try to illustrate this, and this is always dangerous. Because if an illustration doesn't clarify, then I'm really in trouble. But let me... Let me see if I can do this for you. The Messiah is promised an eternal kingdom. All right? Back in Daniel chapter 7, go ahead and if you can find your there, way there quickly, go ahead and turn, otherwise just listen. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, Daniel said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The promise to the Messiah is an everlasting kingdom, an eternal kingdom. 
Yet Revelation 20, chapter 20, reveals to us that his kingdom lasts only how long? A thousand years. So how can the kingdom of Messiah last only a thousand years and be an eternal kingdom at the same time? The answer is that there are two stages of his kingdom. There is the temporal stage of a thousand years that then flows into the eternal stage. Unless you think I'm making all of this up, I will take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where the Apostle Paul says exactly that. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 24. It says, then comes the end, that is with Christ coming, when He delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He is, accept- he is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. What's Paul saying? He's saying that the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory to receive his promised kingdom. And this promised earthly kingdom lasts for a thousand years, after which there is the great rebellion, and then it is put down. And when it is put down, then at that point in time, death is abolished. And, and, and Satan is cast into the lake of fire and the kingdom is handed back to the Father. Verse 24, He delivers it up to the God and Father and it flows into the eternal kingdom described in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. So which is Christ's kingdom? Is it temporal or is it eternal? The answer is it is both. The temporal is but a down payment on the eternal. What it looks like in the temporal is a, is a view of what the eternal will be like. In the same way, the tribulation period and the judgments of the tribulation period are a glimpse, are a down payment, are an illustration of what it looks like in hell forever. All generations live in the light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. When He returns, whichever generation is alive at that moment, will those that are wicked will enter into the period of the tribulation which flows into the eternal judgment. Those that die first go right into that eternal judgment. But in either case, they get what they deserve. Back to Revelation 2 where He promises now to those who have walked in the way of righteousness, to those who have remained firm with Christ, the overcomer, He gives them a twofold promise. Verse 26, And to he who overcomes and he who keeps My deeds until the end, I give him authority to rule over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also received authority from My Father." His promise is they will share in the rule of the messianic kingdom. They may have it hard now. They are facing the loss of job now. 
They are facing the devastating economic consequences that will come as a result of standing firm for Christ in the face of of loss of employment now. But they will rule with Messiah when He returns. He draws here upon Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, the the clearly messianic psalm and the promise of God the Father to Messiah that He will have victory over His enemies and that He will rule over them. And what Jesus says is, not only will I rule over them, but you will rule over them with me. When Christ returns, when He smashes His enemies, His saints will rule, return and rule with Him. Matthew 19.28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you have followed Me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne. You shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. For those who walk with Christ, the prospect before us is a glorious reign and rule. He also promises them glory, verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. Now this is a pretty obscure saying. And there's a lot of difference of opinion as to what it is being promised here. In Revelation 22.16, Jesus Himself is spoken of as the morning star. So some say that what He's promising them is that He will give them Himself, but I'm not sure how He gives to a believer Himself in any way different than He already has. So I'm inclined to look for an Old Testament correspondence. Just like Psalm 2, verses 26 and 27, drawn out of Psalm 2 in the Old Testament, I'm looking for an Old Testament correspondence. I find it in Daniel 12 and verse 3. Where there it says, to those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I think the promise here is that if you remain faithful to Messiah, then you will shine with glory in His kingdom. Not your glory, but a reflected glory of Him. You will reign and you will rule and you will be glorious. You will no longer be downcast, downtrodden, the the dregs of society, but you will reign and rule with glory. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. I think the promise that He's making to these poor, beleaguered Christians, and by extension to you and me today, is that when you stand in the path of righteousness, regardless how much you suffer for it, there is a promise for you that you will reign and rule with Christ and His kingdom in a great and glorious way. And that kingdom could start Now. So what will you do? What will you do? Verse 29, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How did this church respond to this message? We don't know for sure. Other than to say that by the second century, the church at Thyatira had fallen prey to Montanism and it slipped into Obscurity. Beloved Revelation, chapters 4 through 22, is a great vision of the end. It's a movie, if you will. 
It's a, it's a movie of how things are going to end. And in, the, in that great movie, there are two endings. It's like a DVD, if I can use this illustration, in which there is an alternative ending. You know, before DVDs, we never had such a thing available to us, did we? We'd buy a movie, you know, a VCR movie, and you'd watch it to the end, and the end is the end. But now you get a DVD, and they give you alternative endings. If you don't like the way it ends this way, there's another way we filmed it. Kind of have your own reality. Well, in a small sense, what we're looking at here in the book of Revelation is the movie of the end of the age in which there are two endings. For those who walk in righteousness and adhere to the doctrine of the apostles, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, your ending goes through Revelation chapter, begins in, in, in Revelation 3 with a rapture and picks up again in chapter 20 with reigning and ruling and then 21-22 into the great and glorious eternal state. For those of you who refuse Christ, your ending goes right into chapter 4 in which judgment and tribulation is poured out like hammer blows one after another with increasing intensity preparing you for the great eschatological, eschatological judgments of the lake of fire. If you hang on with Christ, blessing. If you refuse Christ, cursing. Which ending do you want to be true of you? Which ending do you want to cap your life? If you are walking in the path of wickedness, you must repent of your sin and you must do so now. Today is the day of salvation. Yes, you might die. And at that point, your fate is sealed. But it's not just that you might die, beloved. It's that Christ might return right now and draw down the curtain. He might close the books now and balance the accounts and you will be found wanting. must repent of your sin. You must give up on your self-righteousness, on your independence and rebellion, of your desire to be master of your own fate, captain of your own ship. You must humble your heart and embrace the truth of the Word of God, which is that you have no righteousness. And that you must flee to the cross of Jesus Christ by faith, believing that He died for you. You are on the path of righteousness. You must remain on the path. What you do in this life does matter. What happens in this body affects your soul. Stay on the path of righteousness. Walk to the end. Whether God grants you another 60 or 70 or 80 years, or whether He come and take it home now, in death or by His return, walk in the path of righteousness. What ending do you want to be true for you? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in which we give testimony to the work of Christ and grace in our own hearts. But when the service closes, there is always one or two that are standing over here by this lighted cross. The reason they're there every week is to make themselves available to you if you have questions. 
If you're not sure, you've heard something this morning you're not sure about, or, or you have come to the realization that I don't know Jesus Christ. I think I'm on the wrong path. You come, you let them open the Word of God with you and show you how you might walk in the path of righteousness. Let me pray. Lord God, may you press home the truth that there is only two ways. The way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. And that these paths are divergent paths. And that which one we walk on matters both now and eternally. May you increase our understanding and faith in the sufficiency of your word. May you scare us, Lord, terrify us with the prospect of judgment that we might walk in righteousness. And may you strengthen us by your Spirit that we can indeed glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.